University Baptist Church is a faith community striving to think critically, live creatively, and love continually in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. We gather on Sunday mornings at 5775 Highland Road between Lee Drive and Kenilworth Parkland. Visit ubc-br.org or at ubcbr on Facebook for more information. We pray all these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Do you know that the number one rated board game of all time is chess? Now, wizard chess should be at the top of that list, but that's another conversation for another time. And it makes sense probably because it's the most universal board game that's out there. It's, it's a simple game with two players starting off with 16 pieces on a board. And it's one game that can be strategized beforehand successfully with a sharp mind. And even if somebody makes a play that's unpredictable, did you know that there's merely 9 million variations of positions that you can take? I think that's what uh, makes chess so brilliant, even when the greatest minds can never fully predict what the other player is going to do, leaving you subject to whatever choices they make. Now, that's a metaphor for life, if I haven't heard one before. We're wrapping up our series this morning, uh, Life, a conversation on the meaning of existence from the book of Ecclesiastes, and we're taking a look at the more challenging aspects of life and examining what's the purpose behind all of it. And for this week, we take a look at one of the better known passages from Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 1. So I reflected on all this and concluded that the righteous and the wise and what they will do are in God's hands, but no one knows whether love or hate awaits them. All share the common destiny, the righteous and the wicked, the good and the bad, the clean and the unclean, those who offer sacrifices and those who don't. As it is with the good, so with the sinful. As it is with those who take oaths, so with those who are afraid to take them. This is the evil and everything that happens under the sun. The same destiny overtakes all. The hearts of people, moreover, are full of evil, and there is madness in their hearts while they live, and afterwards they join the dead. Anyone who is among the living has hope. Even a live dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will live, but the dead know nothing. They have no further reward, and even their name is forgotten. Their love, their hate, their jealousy have long since vanished. Never again will they be part of anything that happens under the sun. The category is optimism, and I'll take 500, Alex. <laughs> I felt like a, a Xanax would have been perfect for reading this passage. How depressing, how glib uh, scripture. And it's not like this isn't in the wheelhouse of Ecclesiastes. He's kind of been pessimistic, the Debbie Downer, the entire book. He's, this is the guy that coined the phrase, meaningless, everything is meaningless. But this passage feels different. It feels uncomfortable. It feels glib and bleak and defeatist. It, it feels fatalistic. So what is he trying to say? Despite how we feel about it, the message is resolutely clear. We are all going to die. What's the old saying? There's two things that are guaranteed in this world, death and taxes. I love how the late comedian George Burns put it, I can't afford to die, I'd lose too much money. Death is inevitable. Some might even say it, it is a terminal inconvenience or a reason to suddenly stop sinning. But all, all jokes aside, 
few uh, things are sure in life, and, and some of us have less things in common, but there's one thing that is in common. We're all going to die. And, and it's true. Every person that's ever walked the face of the earth, no matter if you're Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk, who seem to always be competing to see who's the richest person in the world, they're going to die too. And as it states in our scripture, both the good and the bad, the wicked and the righteous, the unclean and the clean, those who follow religious practices and those who don't, all have one thing in common, death. And every single human will eventually go through this final cycle of life, and it's important to realize this. And the teacher of Ecclesiastes poetically, prophetically states in 203 words, we're all going to die. I was very fortunate growing up that I didn't face um, a, a lot of tragedy in my early years. Uh, family was relatively healthy. No unexpected tragedies occurred. But the first real experience I had with death was when my, my granddaddy lost his battle with cancer when I was 19 years old. I, I loved that man fiercely, and, and I was heartbroken to see him go. But it really wasn't for another eight years before I experienced loss uh, in a rapid way that some of you have experienced before. All in the span of two years, I lost my three remaining grandparents, and we lost uh, a baby 12 weeks into pregnancy. And these very back-to-back, very gut-wrenching and difficult experiences within, within me awoke this loss, the realization that we live such finite existence. We might not like it. It might not be a popular thing to talk about, but that doesn't change the fact that we're going to die. And, and when we know this to be true, it doesn't change the fact that we can avoid recognizing our finite existence as much as we can. Why do we fail to recognize the finality of life? For many, the reality of death is met with one of three responses, escape, endurance, or enjoyment. And, and for some, we, we live the cycle of work and food and leisure and sleep and repeat without realizing days and weeks and years go by with us just living our life in a cycle, hoping to get to the next chapter, the next promotion, retirement, and that cycle blinds us from the finality of our existence. And for others, we can imagine things and people being any different in relation to us than what we are experiencing right now. And it's easy for us to take for granted the closeness and physical presence of loved ones in our lives. Their smell, the emotions they bring out in us, or the energy they bring when they enter in the room. And it's an amazing thing, the, the physical presence of another human being in which we have shared a large part of our life with. And the realization that, that a parent, a child, or a friend may not always be with us is hard to imagine until they're not with us anymore. So why do we only consider the finality of life when we experience near-death experiences or the tragic loss of someone we love? As one person wrote, death is not an accident. It's an appointment, a destiny that nobody but God can cancel or change. I often look back at uh, my college experience and wonder how I made it out alive. <laughs> And don't get me wrong, I didn't party it up or live it up uh, in the way you think. My friends and I were more into other crazy things like stupid feats of courage. <laughs> For example, uh, let's see what it would be like to repel from the third story of our dorm. Um, or what it would be like to, to free swim down some rapids at the river near our school. 
But by far the dumbest thing we ever did was swim in that same river after a hurricane. We, we arrived, the water level was about 15 feet uh, higher and moving swiftly. But because we had done it dozens of times, we jumped in anyways. And, and the, a normal swim to this island in the middle of the river typically took us a couple minutes stopping along the way to rest and wade in the water. But on this day, we passed that island in a matter of seconds. And somehow we had the wits and wherewithal to wade back to the edge of the water Honestly, I don't know how we made it out alive. That there's so many hard questions to consider about our finality. Like, why does it take a stupid choice to jump into a flooding river to realize that you're not invincible and you can die? Why is it that we take the unexpected death of a loved one to wake us up to the reality that tomorrow is not promised? Why does the unfair loss of a great person jostle our picturesque view of the world that everything is going to work in our controlled timing? But ask yourself these really tough questions. If yesterday was your last day, would you be happy with it? Would you feel satisfied? Would it have mattered to others? Let me ask that again. If yesterday was your last day, would you be happy with it? Would you feel satisfied? Would it matter to others? With these hard questions in mind, look at what it says next in verse 7. Go, eat your food with gladness, and drink your wine with joyful heart, for God has already approved what you do. Always be clothed in white, and always anoint your head with oil. Enjoy life with your wife, whom you love, all the days of this meaningless life that God has given you under the sun all of your meaningless days. For this is the lot in your life and in your toilsome labor under the sun. Whatever your hands finds to do, do it with all your might. For in the realm of the dead, where you are going, there is neither working nor planning nor knowledge nor wisdom. I have seen something else under the sun. The race is not the swift or the battle not for the strong. Nor does the food come to the wise or wealth the brilliant or favor to the learned but time and chance happen to them all. Moreover, no one knows when their hour will come. As fish are caught in a cruel net, or birds are taken in the snare, so people are trapped by evil times that fall unexpectedly upon them. You know, at first glance, the final words of the Ecclesiastes teachers on the matter seems to be merely repeating the prose from his first section. He also seems to be saying that that since we can't control when you die, and the fact that the good and the bad, the wicked and the unrighteous, the religious and the irreligious will all die, you should just live up and live whatever way you want. I mean, he does say, go eat your food with gladness and drink your wine with joy in your heart. But is that what he's really saying? I think it would be foolish to think that the teacher is trying to argue whether you're wise or foolish, righteous or unrighteous, good or bad, those who offer sacrifices and those who don't, those who are religious and those who do not have faith, that will all end up dead, so live whatever way you want to. In fact, he's actually arguing the opposite. Yes, no matter who you are and what you do, you will all end up in the snare of death. However, we live, how we live, is judged by our Creator when our time is done. Jesus actually vividly gives us an image of this in this parable he tells of the sheep and the goats, but it's not in the way that we think. 
We all have been trained that our religiosity is what we're going to be judged by when it's all said and done. But Jesus talks about in the parable of the sheep and the goats, he talks about that all people are brought before Almighty God and are divided like sheep and goats. But it's not a division of the religious and irreligious, the rich and the poor, the righteous and the wrong ones. Instead, people are considered righteous by the way they did or did not treat their neighbor, foreign stranger, or have compassion for the marginalized. And why is this the measurement of our soul? Because if we truly love God, then we love our neighbor in the way that we love ourselves, and we love our neighbor in a way that reflects our love for God. Remember when he said that whatever you did or did not do to the least of these, you did or did not do unto me. The teacher of Ecclesiastes is trying to argue the same point as Jesus, that the way we live our life, despite its finality, matters. So how do we live in response to our mortality? We embrace it by living intentionally and with purpose. When we fully accept this fact, when we can start to become anxious by the thought of it, it leads us to a place of paranoia, but when we feel that urge to experience the bliss of life, when we begin to procrastinate less and we begin to live more will discover that the monetary value of your time and then make the most from it. When we realize that half of our existence is spent sleeping and about a third of our life at work and at school, then one feels uh, less, uh, one feels strongly about the free time that we have in our life and it opens our eyes up to a new reality. Acknowledging that our existence is finite, realizing that true value of our waking hours, then we begin to utilize and position our lives in such a way that matters. As one biblical scholar put it, life from a human point of view may take on the appearance of progress and increasing control of our circumstances, but it actually all things pass away, leaving little trace of human input. One must find enjoyment while one may. No matter the circumstances, each day is valuable and a gift from God. If we have the right attitude, We'll see God's goodness in every situation. We can daily choose to focus on the good rather than obsessing over the bad and what went wrong. See, goodness is stronger than evil. Love is stronger than hate. Light is stronger than darkness. Life is stronger than death. In our world, day to day, it may feel like evil has the final word or hate may appear to be on the rise, but as it is said, always darkest before the dawn. Rest with goodness and with love and with light. These are the things that have the final word. As one person put it, death is not the greatest loss in life. The greatest loss is what dies inside us while we live. And it begins with living intentionally. And how we do that is by following Jesus. We've been taught a heresy for far too long that the purpose that Jesus came to earth was for us to ask him into our heart, say a little prayer, and then we get to go to heaven one day. When did Jesus ever state that as his purpose? You're never going to find it in the Bible because he never said it. Jesus consistently throughout all four gospels invited people to follow him, to believe in his way, the truth, and the life. To follow him is to believe that his actions he took and the teachings that he taught 
are a model for the way that we are called to live our lives. And Jesus taught us so much more than just religious practices. In fact, he did very little teaching on religious practices. Jesus teaches all about living our life in the way that God designed us. He taught us about heartbreak and grief and sorrow and troubles, conflict and anger and hatred and isolation and loneliness and control and power and fatalism and futility and greed and envy. He showed us that there is a way of hope and peace and love and joy and community and service and inclusiveness and satisfaction and enough when we live with purpose and fulfillment through him. We can combat the defeatism and hedonism of our finite existence. We can't do that without actually following Jesus with purpose and intentionality. I was having a conversation recently with my kids about uh, a recent video call they had with their grandparents. And we were celebrating how amazing it is that despite the fact that they live nine hours away from us, that with a simple click, they can see and talk with their grandparents whenever they want. And while video calls are, are not a substitute for being physically present together, it's pretty remarkable when you think about it. It, of course, blew their minds that when I was a child, if I wanted to see my grandparents, that video calls, A, didn't exist, and B, I had to drive eight hours to Jacksonville, Florida to see them. And typically, I saw my grandparents two times a year. And I remember in that moment, that conversation, just beginning to tear up, telling them what I wouldn't give to have one more moment with my meemaw, or what I wouldn't pay to have a conversation with my granddaddy, or what I wouldn't sacrifice to have my nana and my papa and my little girl's lives. You see, as we, as we wrap our minds around our finality, we must pivot to have meaningful relationships. The teacher of Ecclesiastes urges readers in verse 8, enjoy your life with your wife whom you love. What he's trying to urge is to see the people so wondrously placed in our life journey as an overwhelming blessing. And yet how often do we let the hours and the days and the weeks and the years go walking through the motions of our busyness and taking for granted the people we have in our journey and never fully living into appreciation and wonder of how deeply connected we can be with other human beings. We see the extraordinary nature of the interconnected relationship with God's self as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God, three interwoven parts. God created us to be in meaningful relationships with others, to grow and to learn from others, to experience sorrow and joy, to celebrate and to overcome struggles together. There's a fascinating study that's come out of this pandemic in which uh, psychologists are surprisingly shocked that the number of suicides went down during the COVID-19 crisis. Suicide deaths dropped nearly 6% between 2019 and 2020. And as one psychologist put it, the pulling together effect of this pandemic suggested that people who undergo a shared experience like a once-in-a-generation pandemic may feel connected to each other and are thus at low risk for suicide. Strength and social bonds are key components of our life. People who have relationships or a source of meaningful tethering them to life find hopeful conditions to improve who they are as a human being. Have you told the people in your life how much you mean to them recently? Or how much they mean to you recently? 
we all know this is important, but do we really take the time to, to connect with them on an emotional level, to tell them how much they mean to us? Last December, our, our family went on a road trip to Utah, and now there's no greater bonding experience than driving 23 hours in a car together. <laughs> there's no smellier experience as well. That's another sermon illustration for another time. Most people, when they think of Utah, they think of this, this picture we got up right now. This is, we think of hot, harsh conditions of the desert, and rightly so, because most of the state is just like this. However, this is what we experience. Let's Next picture. Instead of the harsh conditions of 120 degrees with the heat index, we actually saw our car thermostat dip down to 8 degrees. There's something humbling about these sights. It's also something remarkable about seeing how a desert can be covered in snow. The teacher of Ecclesiastes is, is not only calling us to live life with purpose and intentionality, to follow Jesus' leadership, and to live meaningful relationship with others, but also to enjoy the presence, the present for all it's worth. If you read Ecclesiastes, you know the teacher had everything a guy could want. Literally everything. Money, success, power, beautiful women and influence and respect, all of this and more. Yet when you pay careful attention to what he deems best in life, he says this in verse 7 through 10, Go eat your food with gladness and drink your wine with joy in your heart. Enjoy your, life whom you, your wife whom you love. Whatever your hands find to do, do it with all of your might. What should be noticed about this list? First is its simplicity. Happiness doesn't require a yacht in the Bahamas. Per the teacher, the best moments are found in things like a good meal with family and friends, time with your spouse, the satisfaction of a job well done. The second, we can notice that in order to enjoy these things, we have to live in the present. And it's difficult to enjoy a good meal when we're distracted about tomorrow's work presentation. It's hard to appreciate the walk with our spouse in the spring sunshine when we're worrying about our future. The satisfaction of a job well done is lost when all we can think about is the next project. See, enjoying the present requires our attention to remain in the present. It's about feeling the sand between your toes, the, the color and tone of the sky, the laughter of others, the grain of wood and the chair you're sitting in, the dynamic way that all things are connected together. Are you living in the moment? Are you living in in the past of should-haves? Are you living in the futures of, of what-ifs? What would it look like if you soaked up and lived your best self in the present? Have you ever seen uh, the movie Up? It's a Pixar animated movie that begins with the fun you'd expect of any Disney movie. Two children meeting, going on adventures together, falling in love, and then marrying the girl is the dreamer. She, she maps out all the places they will go when they live their lives together, and she puts it all in a book called My Adventure Book. And this all happens beautifully in a span of 10 minutes, connecting the audience to the human experience of friendship and love and surprise and joy, only to have the animators rip your heart out and throw it on the ground when the two kids that are introduced at the beginning eventually grow old together and one of them dies. 
I don't care how many times I have seen this movie, the first 10, moment, 10 minutes of that movie makes me cry every single time. The husband, Carl, remains immobilized by grief inside his home. He feels like his world is crumbling around him. And it wasn't until he finds his wife's adventure book stuffed away in a closet that he realizes that she would never want him to live after her in this kind of way. Her love and their relationship bolsters him onward. And that's the last thing I want us to see from our text this morning. The call to live like Jesus, leaving an indelible mark on all those we encounter. I love how the teacher puts it. Whatever your hands find to do, do it with all of your might. Can you imagine how our lives will be transformed if we lived each day knowing that we can be part of God's powerful work of love and hope and goodness and peace through Jesus? Can you imagine how our lives, our work, our relationships, our comings and goings would all have great meaning if we lived with purpose that comes through Jesus? As the great Steve Jobs said, if you live each day as if it was your last, someday you'll most certainly be right. Let's enter into a time of quiet meditation together.